Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm actually doing great. I am currently enjoying my first cup of coffee in about two days, and it is a goddamn delight. See, we were snowed in for a couple of days there, and we certainly had a much easier go of it than most people that I know that were in that situation. We did not lose power like much of our city did, and we were for the most part pretty well stocked on supplies, the two exceptions being we ran out of coffee and we almost ran out of toilet paper. And while I am fairly confident that if we hadn't run out of coffee, we would have run out of toilet paper, it's still nice to have coffee again. I also wanted to mention just up at the top of the show, I've had a bunch of people recommend the comic book series The Other History of the DC Universe, and especially bringing to my attention the fact that the second issue of that series focuses on Mal Duncan and Karen Beecher, from the second half of the original Teen Titans run. And yeah, you guys weren't kidding. That series is phenomenal, and that book is really, really good. If you enjoyed the Teen Titan Wasteland episodes of this show, I would highly recommend seeking out that title as kind of a companion piece to the series, which covers the events from those issues from the perspective of the Black characters who participated in them, and it's really, really good. And now that we've gotten the recommendations out of the way, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. The 1920s flapper was a tip-top miss, and now it's time for a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, old-timey singer guy. You're welcome. Thanks for loaning me this megaphone. Goodbye. Defenders, number 92. February, 1981. Eternity. Humanity. And oblivion. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inkted by Pablo Marcos. Lettered by Diana Albers. Colored by George Rousos. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. The Incredible Hulk. Nighthawk, Hellcat, Clea, Doctor Strange, Namor the Submariner, Son of Satan, and the Silver Surfer. Previously in the Defenders. Ed Hannigan's run on the Defenders concluded with Mandrill, the highly problematic supervillain, getting shot to death by his mother. Hooray! And also, Gadzooks! With Ed Hannigan no longer writing the book, does that mean there won't be any more thinly-veiled peons to Ayn Rand? How will Silver Surfer flex his cosmic might? And now that there's a new writer at the helm, will we get a smaller story with more focus on the core characters to help establish the new normal? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... I sure hope so by doing some silver sulking, and, in a manner of speaking, yes. 
but that manner of speaking is colloquially known as lying. Clay and Doctor Strange are hanging out in the Sanctum Sanctimonious, watching the Hulk play with some action figures of Dormammu and his cult of worshippers that I guess Steve had lying around. It's pretty damn adorable, but also seems like a weird choice to have a toy version of your greatest enemy. I mean, it's not like I have an action figure of that one guy who left us a one-star review, and, well, I haven't been over to Cory's house in a year or so, I'm pretty sure it isn't littered with toy geese and ponies. Although he does have a birthday coming up. I mean, it's in July, but it is coming up. Technically, everybody has a birthday coming up. That's just how time and birthdays work. Anyway, the Hulk is playing with Steve's dolls when Nighthawk shows up. Hulk asks if Kyle wants to play too, but Clay is like, Uh, Kyle looks like he'd be a real bummer right now. How about I play with you instead, and we'll let Steve handle doing the emotional labor for old Flappy Pants for a change. Steve is like, Excellent. I'm wonderful at providing emotional support. At least I assume I am. It's never really come up before. Now, what seems to be the trouble? Kyle's like, well, it turns out that I'm a total idiot who sucks and fucks everything in his life up. Never really bothered me before, but lately it's been kind of a downer. Steve is like, hey, shut up. You may be a total fuck-up, but you've helped me save the world a few times, so that means you're okay in my book. You'd have to be an ignoramus not to recognize that. A real nincompoop. A total piece of... Steve's attempt to berate Nighthawk out of his doldrums is interrupted by a completely blank panel. Well, that's weird. Steve is like, Well, that's weird. Clay is like, Yeah. It's like the entire universe just ceased to exist for a second. Then it happens again. Everybody's pretty darned freaked out by this. Steve starts to offer a hypothesis as to what might be happening, but he makes a weird noise and goes catatonic mid-sentence. Clea looks in the stupefied sorcerer's eyes and sees that they're filled with pictures of tiny little planets. She's like, oh, cosmic stuff. Shit. Shit indeed, Clea. As his body stands motionless in the sanctum, Steve finds his astral self floating around in one of those weirdo dimensions that are filled with bendy spirographs and random geometric shapes. Ghost Steve bobs around for a minute until he runs into a familiar face. Or rather, a familiar half-face. It's his old buddy Eternity. Eternity is the anthropomorphized embodiment of, well, everything. You know, time, space, the universe all that stuff. He looks like somebody cut a dude-shaped piece out of a giant set of space-themed bedsheets and then popped a blue Phantom of the Opera mask onto it. It's a pretty good look. The sentient representation of existence looks down and is like, Hey Steve, sorry about yoinking you to wherever this is, but I've got a problem. Which kind of means everybody's got a problem. Steve nods knowingly. I think these two get along because they both know what it's like to be completely sure that they are the center of the universe. Eternity continues. See, a little while ago I got bored. It's lonely being everything. So I decided to hack off little pieces of myself, turn them into sentient beings, and send them off onto various planets to go have lives and do things. You know, fall in love, fight, get sick, die, stuff like that. 
But after a while, I called them all back and sponged them back into myself, reabsorbing their individuality and experiences. It was pretty neat. I learned a lot from it, and I wasn't bored anymore. But after a while, I started to feel like something was a little off. Turned out that three of the little me's I sent off to be them's for a while never came back. Something's keeping me from reabsorbing them, too. Which means that I'm no longer everything. Which is a problem. Because if the embodiment of everything is missing something, then it will cease to be everything and won't exist anymore. Which means that everything will cease to exist. Steve nods solemnly, like this Ouroboros of a tautological argument doesn't give him a fucking migraine, and says, So you'd like me and my pals to gather up your errant offspring and return them to you so that you can munch them up like a benign version of Cronus eating his children before you end therefore all of creation blip out of existence? Right? Eternity is like, Yeah, more or less. Coincidentally, all three of my wayward clippings are on Earth, so it shouldn't take you that long to find them. I mean, it's a pretty small planet. Anyway, thanks, buddy. And with that, Steve finds himself reunited with his corporeal form back in the Sanctum. He quickly explains the situation to Clea, Kyle, and the Hulk, then places a mystical Zoom call to Hellcat and Valkyrie. Figuring that the potential unmaking of reality is kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation, the supercilious Sorcerer Supreme decides to bring some old pals in on this one. Steve sends his astral avatar to Atlantis and asks Namor for his assistance. The irascible Emperor of the Deep begrudgingly agrees to help. Hooray! Next up, Spectral Steve visits the Himalayan Peak, where the Silver Surfer likes to go to mope about the fact that he's stuck on Earth. He fills his cosmic-powered colleague in on the nature of the cataclysmic kerfuffle, but the surfer's like, No, I'm far too busy sulking to save the universe. Go away. So Steve goes away. Specifically, he goes away to the Eastern University, where demonologist Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. the son of Satan, is doing some research. Damon is like, Yes, I figured something like that was up. Let me grab my pitchfork and Dracula cape, and I'll meet you at the Sanctum. Hooray! A few minutes later, the temporarily expanded roster of our titular non-team convenes at Steve's apartment. Steve has already used one of his weird and eldritch doodads to locate the missing shards of eternity. To maximize their efficiency, the gang decides to split up into teams of two. Hellcat and Son of Satan will investigate the chunk of Eternity which had been living at a temple in a secluded part of India. Nighthawk and the Hulk will seek out the piece that was hanging out in a remote village in northern Russia. Namor and Valkyrie will look for the fragment that was on an island off the coast of Greece. And Steve and Clea will stay at the Sanctum and use their combined magic to try to keep Eternity from unraveling any further while the rest of the defenders are searching for his bits. Sounds like a plan. I mean, a plan that is somehow both complicated and vague, but a plan nonetheless. Damon and Patsy teleport into the middle of the temple they've been tasked with exploring. Patsy's a little brusque at first, then apologizes, and is like, Hey, sorry about that. My mom just died and I'm a little emotionally raw. I'd really rather not talk about it. Hellstrom responds, I get it. You may not believe this, but I, son of Satan have also had difficulties with one of my parents. You don't say. 
At this point, the two heroes look around and notice for the first time that they are not alone. They're delighted to realize that prior to their departure, Steve cast a translation spell on them so that they'd be able to communicate with the locals. They're less delighted when the locals attack them and call Damon the devil. Can't imagine where they got that idea. Why, it's almost as if magically appearing in the middle of a room, carrying a pitchfork, and having a pentagram tattooed on your bare chest might not have made the best first impression. Son of Satan creates an explosion of hellfire which sends the riled-up parishioners reeling. Then he grabs the nearest person and threatens to feed her organs to dogs if she doesn't cooperate. Gee, can't believe they didn't immediately recognize you were one of the good guys, Damon. Patsy steps in to play good cop and calms the situation down. The lady's like, Sorry we attacked you, but it's been a little nutty around here. See, a couple of days ago, we were all sitting around worshipping Rama like you do when a couple of weird things happened. Rama sent one of his buddies, the monkey-headed god Hanuman, to take our leader, Sai Anand, into protective custody. He said demons were trying to kill him, but Sai would be safe with him. When you showed up, we figured you were those demons we were warned about. Damon and Patsy have a little tete-a-tete and come to the conclusion that this Cyanon fella is probably the shard of eternity that they're looking for, and whatever cosmic force it is that was preventing his reunification has decided to disguise itself as Hanuman and kidnap him. The two heroes head off in pursuit of their ape-impersonating adversary. They don't have to search for long. Before they've gotten too far from the temple, they're ambushed by the alleged Hanuman. After a rough start, the kitty cat cosplaying crime fighter and the devil-dadded do-gooder make short work of the false god. Once he's defeated, the simian semblance sneak attacker fades into nothingness, and Patsy and Damon head towards the estranged building that they suddenly notice off in the distance, confident that that is where they will find Cyanand. Meanwhile, Nighthawk and the Hulk find themselves in a remote village in Arctic Russia. The village is under attack by what appears to be a group of snow demons. The Hulk and Kyle respectively smash and laser the shit out of the offending monsters, and are cheered as heroes by the villagers. Hulk rather enjoys the novelty of this reception. Kyle asks if anyone has gone missing recently. A middle-aged couple named Anya and Rodian step forward and tell the duo of defenders that indeed their adopted son Ivan was abducted by the ice demons a few days ago. Anya is tearful as she recounts how she and her husband had taken Ivan in after he had wandered into the village a few years ago. Rodian comforts his wife and says, now that these two brave adventurers are on the case, he's sure they'll get their son back. Kyle's like, um, yeah, bring him back. That's what we'll do. Not feed him to a giant celestial being to save the universe, that's for sure. The billionaire duel bird enthusiast feels pretty crummy about lying to the forlorn foster parents, but not as bad as he would if he told them the truth, so what are you going to do? The conflicted crime fighter and his emerald ally head off in search of Ivan. After they get a little ways from the village, a sheet of ice freezes them in place. The Hulk smashes out of the ice, then freezes bird-nosed buddy. They see an ice castle off in the distance and head towards it. Hmm, starting to sense a theme here. Let's check in on Valkyrie and Namor and see if the pattern holds. The Aesir Amazon and the Avenging Son of Atlantis find themselves on the shores of a privately owned island off the coast of Greece. A sprawling mansion looms in the background. Val and the Submariner spend a few seconds catching up on old times, 
Then a bunch of armed guards start firing machine guns at them. Big mistake, armed guards. Namor and Valkyrie hate having machine guns fired at them. The two heroes beat the crap out of the guards until a beautiful middle-aged British lady pops out of the mansion and is like, Knock it off, guards. Can't you see that that's Namor? I remember him from World War II. Hi, Namor, big fan. Are you here to track down my missing husband, shipping magnate Socrates Carvopolis? Last night he was carried off by a giant harpy. I'm pretty sure they went to that weird island off in the distance. You will save him, won't you? Namor is like, I'm sorry. You seem like a nice lady, even though I can't figure out what accent you're going for. But we already looked for your husband, and it turns out he's definitely 100% dead. Come on, Val, let's go. The two heroes fly off in the direction that Mrs. Carvopolis indicated. Val's like, why did you tell her that? Namor replies, look, the guy that she married is clearly a shard of eternity. That means either we find him and smush him back into his dad, or we don't and reality implodes. Either way, she's not getting her husband back, so she may as well start the grieving process now. It's like I always say, sometimes you have to be a total dick to be kind. On their way to the island, the two warriors are attacked by a harpy and the ancient Greek sea god Glaucus. They beat the shit out of the mythological menaces and continue on to the island, where they find a strange temple hidden in a cave. Following the sounds coming from within the cavern, the spelunking superheroes head inside, where they find... everybody. Inside the temple, it's all trippy and cosmic, with a bunch of floating platforms and space shit. On the central platform stands Socrates Carvopolis, Cyanond, and Ivan, the three individuals created from the fragments of eternity. On little floaty things around them stand Son of Satan, Hellcat, Nighthawk, and the Hulk. The Eternity tidbits are like, Hey Defenders, we appreciate you looking for us and all, but the thing is, we fucking hated being part of Eternity. It sucked. We like being separate way better. In fact, we'd rather not exist than give up our individuality. So we're just gonna sit here and wait for the universe to end. In like, what? 15 minutes or so? We like you guys, so you can hang out with us here and watch the show if you want. Son of Satan is like, Well, fuck that! I'd rather it didn't come to this, but I guess we'll just have to kill you all and shove your corpses into your dad's body. Gross. The defenders heed Damon's gross words and attack. It doesn't go great. Ivan reflects Son of Satan's hellfire back at him and knocks him out. Psy wiggles his fingers at the Hulk and tricks him into attacking Valkyrie. Namor tries to attack the group from behind, but the Eternity Shards trap him in a force bubble. Then they summon a construct of Patsy's recently deceased mother, Dorothy. Unsettling. The Phantom Mom attacks her distraught daughter, who's too freaked out to defend herself. Which just leaves... Nighthawk. Well, it was a nice universe we had going for us. Shame it couldn't last. Kyle faces the errant Eternity Particles and is like, Come on, guys. Knock it off. I get that you loved being human, but a big part of being human is loving and caring about others. Think about the people you loved during your time on Earth. Do you really want them to blink out of existence because of your selfishness? Now, will you please go jump into your dad's cosmic tummy or whatever? The three individuals look at each other and simultaneously make the decision to sacrifice their egos for the sake of their loved ones, 
and they all go jump into their dad's cosmic tummy or whatever. Hooray! Huh. Risky move appealing to the benevolence of a group of people that just summoned a zombie mom to beat up her grieving daughter, but I'm glad it paid off. Later that night, back at the Sanctum, everybody's pretty wiped out. Steve gives a little speech about what a great job Kyle did, but Kyle cuts him off and is like, Yeah, whatever, Steve. I just feel bad for that Russian couple who I promised their son would be okay. Kinda fucked that up, didn't I? You sure did, Kyle. You sure did. The end. Huh. So a story about how it's sometimes necessary to sacrifice your individual desires for the greater good. Yeah, I'd say the Ed Hannigan run is definitely over. Hooray! And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. Enjoying being snowed in? I don't know. Yeah, it's a weird situation. It kind of reminds me of, like, when you're unemployed and it's the weekend. Mm. Being snowed in during a pandemic has that ring to it, where it's just like, oh... Now I can't leave the house for a different reason than I normally can't leave the house. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, also, happy Valentine's Day. Hey, likewise, happy Valentine's Day. You looking forward to getting some discount candy tomorrow? Mm, I like the idea of that, but I'm, I'm not a huge candy person. I enjoy candy, and I always also get very excited about like the post-holiday idea of discount candy. I know you are a big fan of savings, if not necessarily candy, mm -hmm. and I am as well. But yeah, I do always have to remind myself, like, no, the reason I don't constantly buy candy is not because it is cost prohibitive. Yeah. Well, we got a lot of comic book to get to. Yeah, so many words. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I was surprised that... It came to conclusion in one issue. I felt like it was being set up to go on for a little while. So I guess in that regard, pleasantly surprised that it was self-contained. I think it might have actually benefited from having two issues to take care of this story because it was a little bit densely packed. That being said, I actually really enjoyed this comic. There was definitely a lot going on with it, and I would argue maybe a little bit too much. But... For a new writer taking over the series, frankly, it won me over in the first panel, and that just bought me so much goodwill through the rest of the comic, just the Hulk playing with dolls. That was adorable. Yeah. And then just the book itself, I think it did a lot of things that made sense for a new writer taking over a run, and it made it feel more intentional than, certainly with the last round, it was Hannigan ended up taking over in the middle of a story. And this, it felt like it was intentionally going back and doing a story that was reflective, at least, or reminiscent of the first Defender story. And it had some callbacks to that kind of thing. And there was a lot I really enjoyed about it. It maybe a little bit felt like Demetrius's knowledge of the Defenders was kind of mine of a book that I was trying to do a report on in high school. 
where it's like, oh, I think he read the first comic and the last comic, and then maybe a summary of what happened in between. Because mm. it seemed like he knew most of the major events, but the characterization of characters was totally different than we've seen, certainly in recent issues. But I liked his take on the character, so it kind of didn't bother me so much. Yeah, it was nice to see an exploration of the more, I guess, childlike side of the Hulk's take on things. Yeah. I mean, we've seen him be childlike before, but more often than not, just as kind of a raging id monster kind of childlike. As, as most children are. Yeah. Hey, I was one. I was one, too. But I like it. it seemed like it's getting back to the whole idea of the non-team defenders that comes together when there is a cataclysmic event that is upcoming. And that's been like nominally what the defenders have been since their inception. But for all practical purposes, they've pretty much just been a superhero team for the last at least 50 or 60 issues. And this seemed to be more a returning to, oh, there is a giant world-threatening threat, so Steve gets out his mystical Rolodex and calls up the heroes best suited to deal with it. Or, you know, tries to in the case of the Silver Surfer. Yeah, he just really doesn't show up. He's like, man, last time I was there, there was just mountains of cocaine and things didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, you're used to seeing, like, the hero that is reluctant to answer the call, and he's, like, kind of mopey, but he's like, but I guess fine, I'll go along with this. We've seen Namor do that, like, a billion times, and that's kind of the Hulk's default setting, too, or mm -hmm. has been. But we're not so used to seeing them just be like, no, I'm mopey, I don't wanna. And the person with the call to heroics is like, oh, um, okay, bye. Yeah, Steve's like, I don't have time. Next. Can you imagine, like, they've had to deal with some shit for sure, but I cannot, like, even if I'm a hero and a super powerful magic guy like Steve, some galactic critter says, hey, you got eight hours to solve this shit. And be like, no, man, you got the wrong guy, because that is a tight deadline, and I, I got stressed out. Yeah. It is a super tight deadline, and it really does a very effective job setting up how big a deal this is. Really, there's just those two panels where there's nothing in the panel, where just reality blinks out of existence for, like, one panel, and then it comes back, and then it's gone for another panel. And it's something I haven't seen before, and it's playing with the medium in a really fun way, but it was just like, whoa, you just did a thing that I didn't think you could do. I was going to ask you about that. Like, I thought that was super clever, and I don't feel like I've seen that in comics before. If I have seen it, I've forgotten about it. It's certainly not something that you see occurring commonly. I would honestly be surprised if it is the first time that this technique has been used, but it is still very novel. And I thought very effective. As I said, we got a new writer on this issue. It's J.M. DeMatteis. I am a big fan of his stuff. He is an incredibly prolific writer. This is towards the early side of his career. He'd only been writing comics professionally for, I think, two or three years at this point, uh, mostly at DC. But in that time, he'd already done a fair amount. And he went on to do the really long run along with Keith Giffen and Kevin McGuire and later Bart Sears of the uh, Justice League International, the kind of funny superheroes one. 
And I think there is kind of a direct lineage between that and the Defenders. We've talked about it a little bit, but the idea of superheroes as workplace comedy, I feel like that got its start in the Defenders, and then it got really picked up and they took the ball and ran with it in the Justice League. But it's cool to see him come onto this title. And uh, yeah, like I said, an, an auspicious start, I think. Mm-hmm. And we got to hear Kyle refer to himself as a bungler. Yeah, I appreciated that. We've seen self-pitying Kyle a lot, but this doesn't really seem like that as much. It seems like a more self-aware version of Kyle. Mm. Uh yeah, I, I guess, you know, the, the proof of the pudding is in um, the raisins or something. Is that how it goes? <laughs> I think it's just the proof is in the pudding, no? I think it actually was originally the proof of the pudding is in the eating, but... But the raisins absorb all the alcohol? Yeah, so okay. they would be higher proof. Okay. Um. So, yeah. That's probably how it goes. All right. Glad we sorted that out. Right. Uh, what was that? Oh, Kyle. A more genuine self-pity? <laughs> Not so surface level? More genuine self-reproach, I think, mm. than just the general like, oh, I'm the worst. Everybody, everybody, I just said I'm the worst. That's your cue. <laughs> mm-hmm. It does kind of have that effect, but he just comes in looking kind of hangdog instead of blustering about how put upon he is. And I think that is partly due to the events that are referred to in this. In a comic called Marvel Team-Up 101, there's a little asterisk that refers to it. That was a comic that was written by J.M. Demetrius also, and I think we might need to cover it because... I haven't read that comic, but I read a little synopsis of it online, and apparently it involves robots with laser guitars and razor picket signs. So I Whoa. think we might need to cover that comic. It, yeah, it sounds relevant to our area of interest. I'm curious to what extent they're going to be dedicated to the idea of the Defenders going back to being more of a non-team, as it was established that they were going to be initially. And as I said, it seems like they're trying to get back to. Because for a while now, I mean, they've had a fairly steady roster, and it's been important that they have a headquarters, but they still are insistent that they are a non-team. I remember, I think, when I was in my early 20s, I had a friend who was having an anti-Valentine's Day party, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm not dating anybody. We'll go to this party. That'll be fun. I will have too much to drink and maybe try to get up the nerve to talk to this girl that I had a crush on. And I was telling somebody that I was going to an anti-Valentine's Day party that night, and they're like, how is that different than a Valentine's Day party? And I thought for a second, I was like, um, there's no difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a party that's on Valentine's Day. It's a Valentine's Day party. I guess we're just not calling it that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the Defenders are a non-team. Ah, yep, that's a, that's a good metaphor. Thank you. So one of the other things I, I thought that was done 
more gracefully than usual is taking this high concept of like I am the organizing force of the universe, also a dude named Eternity. Mm-hmm. And I split myself up and put some parts of myself on Earth because I was lonely. <laughs> and I was like, I don't need to do that anymore. All right, parts of myself come back, but then some didn't want to come back, and now everything's all screwed up. I mean, that's the gist of it. Right. But I don't know. I feel like that stuff, I'm kind of usually a more eye-rolly about it. But this, this one kind of worked, I felt. I agree. There were parts of it that still didn't work for me, and I think it was still a little bit overwrought. For one thing, the aspects of Eternity that he sends out into the universe to go and do shit, I guess it kind of makes sense that they would be kind of grandiose and over the top, as they are parts of the personification of everything-ness. But it did feel a little bit extra that they're just like, oh, I need to fake my own disappearance. How should I do that? What's the way that will draw the least attention to me? Uh, kidnapped by giant monkey god. Kidnapped by giant ice monsters. And kidnapped by sea monsters and harpies. <laughs> it's like, <sighs> you... You could have just said you were going out to get some milk and then not come back. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have been a Defenders comic without that layer of uh, unnecessary stuff. Yeah, and also, yeah, like I said, that the idea that they would be a little extra, as it were, seeing that they are parts of this character who is named Eternity, who is everything in the world, and decides that as part of his everythingness in his day-to-day general appearance, he's going to wear a giant cape and kind of make himself look like a leotard you might buy at a planetarium gift shop. It, it, it makes sense that they would have a flair for the dramatic. Yeah, I was thinking it's rather a shame we don't have President of the Drama Club as a category for <laughs> this, because that one panel i think it's on page five he's like doing jazz hands and showing all of the aspects of himself that he created Mm -hmm. it is so drama it really is i also like the fact that yeah it looks like part of his outline is a steve style uh dracula cape that has those weird little hooks that come out over the collars is that for hanging the coat up yeah, I was trying to figure that out. It looks sort of like a really old-timey, like, wrought iron music stand. Like the thing oh, that you yeah. would put sheet music on. Mm-hmm. Attached to his shoulders, for some reason. Yeah. It's weird, because I think it took there being two of those in the same issue for me to notice it. Because Steve's totally does that, too. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, that's Steve. But then, once this other guy comes in and has the same, like, weird cape hook collar things i was like that is actually kind of weird Mm -hmm. i also wondered if that's why patsy is not wearing her shadow cloak in this issue because son of satan shows up and he's got his red dracula cape and maybe there's like okay we can have two in an issue red dracula capes but we can't have three it's too much yeah It was nice to see Son of Satan again. So, 
I was trying to remember if he's always as, I don't know if mercurial is the right word, but like when his Satan half takes over and he's like, I'm going to say a bunch of really horrible shit. Oh, sorry, guys. I didn't mean it. I think the real answer is sometimes he's that mercurial. It really depends who is writing him and in what era he is being written. A lot of times he comes off just as kind of a Doctor Strange light. But initially, that was a big part of his character, was that he would have these rages that he would fly into when he gets too Satan-y. But yeah, the one instance in which he really has a flare-up in here is very jarring. Let's just read through that dialogue, because it is so over the top. Man, Patsy handles herself so well. She really does, and she does throughout this. She shows a remarkable amount of restraint, and... I think seems to be building a bit of a rapport with Son of Satan, too, which is kind of nice to see. But yeah, so they've just been attacked. He used his Satan power to make all of the people at the temple fall down and go away. And then he grabs a lady and says, Hear me, woman. I will brook no subterfuge. Why were we attacked? Answer me, witch, or I will tear your heart out and feed it to dogs. Whoa! Which is exactly what Patsy says. Whoa, you need to chill the fuck out, man. I mean, that's not how she's. it's written, but that's what she says. Yeah, the whoa is how it's written. She says, whoa, take it easy, Hellstrom. You're frightening this poor gal half out of her wits. Listen, we don't want to hurt you. We just want to know if something odd has been going on here. Perhaps someone's been kidnapped or... And it totally does crack the woman. It is the most abbreviated and extreme and succinct form of good cop, bad cop I have seen in a while, to the point where at first I was like, oh, did they plan this? Hey, can I get you some coffee or anything? (laughs) Sorry about my partner. He gets like this. His dad's the devil. No, it was effective and uh, well played on on her part. But she follows it up like in the next scene by just being like, hey man, you're scaring me by (laughs) being such a weirdo. What's up with that? Yeah, and he does explain his situation. What I was kind of amused by was earlier on when Patsy's like, look, I'm going through some shit. My mom just died. It's complicated. I really don't want to get into it. His response is, oh, of course, totally get it. Hey, if it helps any, um, I've had some issues with my dad in the past. You might not know this, but... And he goes on like he's about to tell her that his dad is Satan. And I was like, yeah, that's not really a secret. Your code name is Son of Satan. You don't get to have that be a reveal. I think it's funny, too. Like, he, he's using this kind of as an opportunity to bond with her. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, we both had mean parents. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, my dad's the devil. You might not realize this, but me, Son of Satan, is the son of i don't know if i'm ready to tell you this (laughs) some people think it's just a nickname we also saw i thought some nice characterization it abbreviated they don't get a ton of screen time but namor comes back and we see him and valkyrie interact and they are both portrayed kind of on equal footing as just strong warriors who work well in unison and i thought that was really nice to see Mm -hmm. yeah they were an absolute badass duo Mm -hmm. and i would like to see more developed of their friendship because when it has been done and it's been a while 
But uh, when it has been done, and, you know, he was there when Valkyrie first joined the team, and they used to hang out some, I always appreciated their dynamic, and I would maybe like to see a little bit more of it. Yeah, same here. I like how in that fight scene, too, the way that it ended, where there's all the stuff going on, and then they're both kind of dragged beneath the surface of the waves, and there's a panel where there's just waves, and then they both pop up. You know, you could they had this mm-hmm. really kind of cinematic, kind of buddy action movie feel to it. Yeah, it was some nice interplay. I also liked her calling him on his shit, where he's like, God, I can't believe Doctor Strange always calls me and gets me to do this shit. And she's like, yeah, but you always say yes, and then you bitch about it the whole time. Um, kind of seems like maybe you don't hate it so much. And, you know, then they're interrupted, but... It's nice to see them portrayed as being on equal footing and having that kind of I don't know, conviviality amongst peers, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Back to weird choices that the Pieces of Eternity made when they were having their little uh, confrontation with the Defenders. I really appreciated the scene where Patsy's mom attacks her. Oh, yeah? <laughs> like, I know that that is part of the the struggle that she's going through but it didn't seem like that was the type of acrimonious relationship we had with her mother and the idea of like this old woman doing a very specific hellcat like diving kick at her was just really funny to me yeah i thought of it as like not necessarily even a physical attack like her mom swings in on a rope or whatever Mm-hmm. And and Patsy's just like, psychologically, is just like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I think it would have made more sense if her mom showed up and was just like, you're a terrible daughter, or something. Like, that was the type of fights that they used to have. But yeah, having her just be an elderly woman making like, I don't know, a daredevil type swing into action was just, okay, sure. That is the kind of lack of subtlety you would see from somebody who decides that the best way for them to do an Irish goodbye on a scene is to have a giant monkey god pick them up and carry them away. (laughs) Fair point. I did also think that it was a little bit weird to see the depictions of the temple to Rama that was in a secluded part of India be mostly populated by blonde white women. Yep, I was wondering about that, too. I mean, I think that was the colorist's decision. But maybe pick up on some context cues there. If it says that it's taking place in a temple in India and the woman has a bindi on her forehead, I mean, I guess she might be a blonde, but it doesn't seem like that should be the default. Mm Mm-hmm. It just seems like an odd choice that I think is, again, just highlighting how expected it is that every character in the comic will be white. That even when the text and the plot set up a situation in which it doesn't make sense for the character to be white, there is still the general assumption that they will be. It actually kind of reminds me, I was uh, just rereading the Wizard of Earthsea series by Ursula Le Guin. And almost all of the characters in that series are explicitly described as being people of color. In the vast majority of the covers of that book, the main character is depicted as being white. Because it's a fantasy novel. Of course the character's white. 
even when the text clearly states that no, he is not. There is so much going on in this comic book, as I think we both mentioned. It's very dense with both words and story, but uh, I think most of the rest of what I want to talk about is going to come up in the minutiae. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? No, I think it'll come up in the minutiae, as you mentioned. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's talk about Hanuman's lederhosen. Okay. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel like focusing on, and why are they Hanuman's lederhosen? I have seen the monkey god depicted in, you know, lots of different ways, Mm -hmm. and... I don't think I've ever seen him wearing like short shorts and suspenders. It's common for him to be drawn with a garland, like flower garlands around his neck that hang down his chest, like like other Hindu deities. Mm-hmm. He's wearing them as just kind of arm garters in this, like an old-timey bartender. Yeah, he's got flower arm garters and bright orange uh, suspenders hooked up to some very short shorts with red trim. <laughs> it's quite a look. It really is, yeah. He's dressed more like one of those creepy toy monkeys that plays the cymbals than he is an Indian deity. Other than that, honestly, not a ton of fashion to go over in this. We talked about Eternity's character design. I will say in this particular issue, he looks a little more drab than I'm used to seeing him. He's got all the planets there, but I think normally he is also just speckled with different stars. And it seems like maybe he needs to go back to the planetarium gift shop and pick up some more glow-in-the-dark stickers. Yeah. I was amused also by how many of his pieces of himself, when he's showing them in, I think, on page five, are wearing sweaters with, what do you call that, like the, the piping around the like the collar? And the sleeves being really pronounced. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a go-to signature style regardless of what planet he's on. (laughs) And apparently it involves sweaters with ribbed collars. Because, yeah, when you see the assortment of uh, Jim Henson creations that he's sending out into the universe as his emissaries slash parts of him, there are a lot of them at least four that I'm counting, that are wearing sweaters with kind of thicker knitted collars. Yep, that's an odd choice. And this isn't really a fashion thing, but I don't know why I was somewhat perturbed by the scene where the way that he is showing love and rejoicing of his parts of self are these kind of cross between like an elephant and a with two trunks, a top and a bottom trunk, and a pig nose uh, couple giving each other a kiss. Yeah, I was seeing them as, like, the hairless cat version of Alf. (laughs) They are some weird-looking creatures. What I think makes them look weirder and what I find more disturbing than their, like, split-trunk elephant mouths is the fact that one of them has a very conventional, like, 60s-style, like, sitcom housewife haircut. Mm Mm-hmm. It's seeing that haircut on 
such a weird character design was just kind of jarring, especially like the dude is bald. And then it really was like, we want to make sure that these alien creatures that exist only as imagination in one panel, we, we don't want them to think that they're gay. So how do we make sure that we know one of them's a woman? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, put a Doris Day wig on it. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah exactly. Very important. Corey, it's time for our most popular new segment, Battle of the Band Names. In our last episode, we put tattered emotions and their new age stylings. New age? New wave. Maybe they're new age, too. (laughs) They're new age, new wave stylings up against the musical juggernaut, Get the Squid Drunk. Frankly, I didn't think the tattered emotions had much of a chance but record scratch what Corey tattered emotions won oh no it was a tight pull but tattered emotions is the new champion for a battle of the band names so we gotta find some band names that we can put up against the maybe new age but definitely new wave musical stylings of tattered emotions I did not expect that. I did not expect that to happen at all. I didn't either. Even of the choices that we had in the last issue, and they were fairly expurgated choices because all three of your choices turned out to be real band names already. Mm-hmm. So we only had two that we were choosing from. And yeah, I honestly didn't think that Tattered Emotions had much of a chance, but uh, I think maybe people were just finally tired of the uh, Sea Shanty Ska covers. Yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd think that novelty would never wear off. No, it seemed like an evergreen. That being said, what band names did you find in this issue? Well, at first, I was discouraged because I thought that the same thing was, was happening where I could only find actual bands now that I've started to fact-check that. So, Big Wizard... <laughs> Is out of the running. <laughs> oh, that is a shame because that is a good name. Mm-hmm. They're a band from Philly. They have one one song on Bandcamp. It's not bad. <laughs> also, when everything becomes nothing, is a uh, death metal band from Spain. Ooh, who have been active for several years. So those are my first two choices, which I cannot <laughs> use. But I I think I got something we can we can work with outside of that. Okay, well, I'm going to say one of mine first because I ended up finding a bunch of them in here. The Cauldron of the Cosmos definitely seems like, okay, if uh, Tattered Emotions is a new wave, new age band, I think Cauldron of the Cosmos is a new age band. (laughs) And I think that's a pretty good name. Very flute forward. Mm Mm-hmm. Of a similar genre, but maybe a little bit more downbeat, Creation's Epitaph. Ooh, nice. I think is pretty heavy, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe some goth stuff. Like, the less energetic side of goth. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think Creation's Epitaph has some legs. So, up against your new age band, I've got one also. That is My Astral Body. Ooh, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. I had the Trackless Barons, and uh, they're a tough band to track down because, as their name would imply, they haven't actually recorded anything. 
<laughs> like, they're one of those bands that, like, are very influential, but they don't have any actual albums out. Kind of like the weirdos in the early West Coast punk scene. So, yeah, the Trackless Barons, and that's B-A-R-R-E-N-S. Although, if you spelled it with a B-A-R-O-N, I think that would also work. But, uh, you know, it's like the Beatles. You misspell one of the words, gets you a little extra press. I'm pretty sure that's what put the Beatles over the top. Mm, probably. Yeah. Up against your goth band, I will put um, Despair Roiling in the Ethers. Oh, man. That's kind of a mouthful, but... Yeah, it's no polychromatic rainbows of descent, but uh, seems like they might be operating in a similar genre. Mm. Yeah, I, well, these guys are definitely more dour. Mm. I think my favorite that I came up with is the MC-DJ combo of Scarlet Wings and Mighty Thews. <laughs> they do, like, sword and sorcery-themed battle raps, and they're really good. Oh, I, I would be curious to see that. I actually had to look up the word Thews. I mean, I figured it out from context, but I, I wanted to double-check. I had not heard that one before. Oh, it's really funny. I actually had this conversation with Lisa on a recent episode of What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. She hadn't heard it either. It came up in the Howard the Duck comic book. I was very familiar with it because I grew up reading a lot of Tarzan books, and he is always doing things with his mighty thews. Mm. They're usually heaving, I think. Rippling. Yeah, they're sinewy. I'll give them that. Oh, yeah. I like that. That's a, that's a good one. I had a death metal type band called Eternity Shudders. Ooh. But I I think my one that I want to put up is they're a Motley Crue cover band called The Motley Group. (laughs) (laughs) With a bunch of umlauts, of course. Oh, boy. I'm almost certain it's come up in the show before, but the saddest show flyer I ever saw was for... A show that was a Motley Crue cover band, an ACDC cover band, and Skid Row. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. I like the Motley group, but honestly, I think it reminds me a little bit too much of that sad show flyer and makes me uh, too sympathetic for Skid Row. How do you feel about putting... Scarlet Wings and Mighty Thews up against Tattered Emotions. I do have the concern that because Thews, for those of us that didn't read a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs, is not super common, but that may engender some curiosity, Mm. which I think will make it a winner. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, I wasn't sure at first if they qualified as a band, but then I remembered that Run DMC first showed a DJ could be a band, stand on its own feet, get you out your seat. So, uh, yeah, I think it qualifies. Let's let's see how Scarlet Wings and Mighty Thews can do. I'll put up that poll on Twitter the night that this episode drops. What was your favorite sound effect? It wasn't written as a sound effect exactly, but it's the noise that is kind of a guttural noise, I think, that Steve makes when Eternity um, (laughs) zaps him out of his physical body. He's in the middle of a sentence. He's trying to say the word trick, but he says trick. Yak! (laughs) 
<laughs> I like that too. Yeah, I like that there's a sound effect that goes with him getting planet eyes and uh, going to commune with eternity. And then it just goes, yak! <laughs> it's a very Bill the Cat type of reaction. Yeah, it is. I liked that a lot. I think my favorite sound effects, I went with ones that were more traditionally drawn as being sound effects. And they were from the sneak attack that the Greek security guards do on Namor and Valkyrie. And it's Pashang Pashok, which is the noise it makes when Val and Namor deflect their bullets. Nice. Pashang Pashok just, uh, it's got a nice resonance to it. I, I really appreciated that. I was also amused by the noise that it made when um, Val gets hit later on page 19 in that final confrontation. And it makes the noise bunt, which made me think, that's odd. Is Val hollow? Like it has an <laughs> echoey kind of quality to it. Any other sound effects? I had a fizzack from page 10. Fizzack's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And actually the same panel as the Pashang and Pashak, you get one of the more fun machine gun noises that I've encountered, which is rut dut 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 dut. <laughs> I like that it starts with the rut. Uh-huh. I don't think you're supposed to read it that way. Probably not. Corey, I got a question I gotta ask you. Mm, okay. Behold or be gone. This issue opens with, as we discussed, the Hulk playing with some action figures that Steve has at his house. What's weird is the characters represented by those action figures, I think, are supposed to represent characters from one of the Defenders' early adventures. Which means that Steve has action figures from a scene from his life. If you could have action figures from any scene or adventure from your life would you want them and if you did what would they be yes i would and they would be that time when we were hitchhiking on the pacific coast highway (laughs) and uh, we made the terrible decision for all six of us to hang on to the running boards and unsecured roof rack of a jeep or something that those two really stoned and drinking surfer dudes were driving (laughs) i've never like honestly had that prolonged of a near-death experience, like where I was just thinking the whole time, like, oh, fuck, (laughs) we're probably going to die. And just the relief when that was over was so palpable. Ah, yeah. And then we got breakfast right after that, and it was like the best breakfast I've ever had, I think in part because of that. What a terrible decision everyone concerned with that made. Nobody did a good job, but it's it's a happy, funny memory now, and like imagining that like uh, is a like a detailed you know kind of plastic toy with the Mm. action figures of everybody and the jeep has like yeah like if you take the action figures off everything just falls apart because that's what's holding it together oh man yeah yeah i think that would be a pretty sweet playset. plus it would actually one of the things that i was considering was the moses hitting himself in the face with the shitboard (laughs) <laughs> which which we discussed in our election special a couple of years ago. Yep. And that incident happened just like an hour or two after yours. So you could just switch out the accessories and have a different vehicle. Like if 
the characters uh-huh. are articulated enough, then one of the things that it could come with would be that piece of cardboard that Moses put over the pile of dog shit in the back of the pickup truck that then flipped over and the wind cost him to keep hitting himself in the face with. Right. Yeah. That was one of the ones that I was considering, but man, if we both get those, gosh, I think that might be my choice. The other one that I was considering was the siblings dance off. Oh, yeah, that is a good one too. Cause that would have really fun costumes. Mm-hmm. Not just for our characters, but for each set of siblings, I think, really brought their A game uh, many, many years ago. Too many for me to think about without getting sad. <laughs> Corey and I not just competed in, but I would like to make this point, won a siblings dance contest that had, I think, five or six sets of competitors. And we had some pretty great outfits, but but the other sets of siblings also, really, I would love to have action figures of them. Mm-hmm. We were, I believe, the Fighting Cougars was our name, and we made ourselves flash dance style shirts that had the collars cut out of them, and we wrote Fighting Cougars on them. Mm-hmm. With like a paw. And we both had breakaway pants, too. Mm-hmm. Man. Yep, those were the days. If memory serves, we were called the Fighting Cougars because we had already used the name the T-Birds to be the name of a book club that I was trying to start. (laughs) Could be. Memories are fuzzy. Yeah. If memory serves, the book club never really got off the ground. We had one meeting. There were about 12 of us. There was a lot of very heavy drinking and discussion about what book we should read first. And it came down to either... The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, or Garfield Rolls On. (laughs) (laughs) And I was really pushing for Garfield Rolls On, and I think it might have been an impasse that we just could not as a group get over. Yeah, that's a tough one. You couldn't have done like a coin toss or something to... I I mean, ultimately, we probably could have, but emotions were running high. Oh, sure. I'm fairly certain that at one point I took off my shoe and banged it on the table like Khrushchev. Yeah, well, that's that's some heavy stuff. Yeah. So I think you might have convinced me. I think, honestly, of those two scenarios, I'm probably just because of the versatility. Or actually, tell you what, no, if you're getting the very ill-conceived hitchhiking that we did in Mexico, then maybe I will take the siblings dance off because then we can have both. Mm -hmm. We can Mm -hmm. trade off. Yeah. and, And, you know, share outfits with each other. Sure. No, I like that. That covers more ground. It's a begrudging behold for me because a 3D representation of myself, gosh, I'm I'm not crazy about that idea. I don't even really like pictures of myself. Well, that's the thing. It's it's an action figure. You can basically do whatever you want with it. Oh. Oh, well, then hell yeah. Because, yeah, my main problem with pictures of myself is that you know, I don't want reality shitting all over the uh, very carefully constructed self-image that I have. But if it's just a sculpted action figure, nobody really expects it to look that much like me. We can just, you know, repaint a uh, a war for a Spider-Man or something. Yeah, whatever you want. Okay. Well, then, yeah, it's a much more enthusiastic behold than uh, I had previously anticipated. All right, Hasbro, if you're listening... <laughs> These ideas aren't free. No way. I'm going to put this uh, podcast in a certified mail envelope and mail it to myself. So no ripping us off. Yeah. 
Corey, what was your favorite panel? Well, I already talked about the panel in which Steve has zapped out of his body when he says yak. And I, I like that one just because the look on his face is so surprised and confused and it just cracked me up. So that's definitely on the list. I think my favorite though was probably at the end, which I called Exhausted Defenders. Mm. And it's them all basically sitting on the couch after they have gotten back. I can't think of another time when I've seen all of them rendered in such a way where they just look completely wiped out. I really, really enjoyed that panel. I interpreted it as they are all so sick of Steve talking. And Kyle, <laughs> right? <laughs> all right? I could really use some some words of affirmation, guys. I think Kyle Kyle also looks exhausted, and we see that like he's so tired that even he wasn't listening to Steve saying nice things about him. Because we see him say, huh? What, what'd you say, Doc? I, I wasn't listening. I was just thinking about those poor people in Russia. So when Steve is being boring enough that Kyle isn't listening to nice things being said about him, that is some seriously monotonous shit. Yeah, you could really imagine that's what's going on because Val is just like slapping her forehead and (laughs) Damon Hellstrom is like literally hanging his head in (laughs) just like, oh, yeah. Namor looks like his head is slumping forward in his chair and he's about to fall asleep like Big Bird. Even Clea, who wasn't on the mission. (laughs) Exactly. That's the thing that drives it over the edge because like she and Steve should be of similar levels of tiredness because they were doing the same activity. But she is just like, oh, God, fucking again, Steve. I get it. You love Kyle so much. (laughs) The other thing that you see going on in that panel is you see Namor, then Son of Satan, then steve strange and it really drives home the progression and the extent to which in terms of fashion son of satan is like a midway point between namor and steve oh yeah totally like he's like well i'm not wearing a shirt but i will wear pants instead of just speedos and i'm gonna have steve's cape and i'm gonna have namor's eyebrows for the most part even his trident i mean that's something that namor sometimes carries even personality-wise, I mean, he's both condescendingly overeducated like Steve and emotionally volatile like Namor. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of really drives home the extent to which he is a hybrid of the two in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, good point. I hadn't thought about that, but you can really see it in that uh, panel. So yeah, I loved that panel too. I think I w- it would be disingenuous, though, if I chose anything other than the Hulk playing with the action figures that Steve has at his house. Why do you think Steve has those action figures? I don't know. I thought they're like uh, fetishes. Like, uh, not fetishes, like in a sexy way. Like in a voodoo way? Yeah. I can see that. If so, it is wildly irresponsible of him to let the Hulk just play with those. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, don't crush that. Oops. (laughs) Sorry, big wizard. (laughs) Didn't need that arm, I hope. See, I think the big wizard is supposed to be Van Nyborg, who is the guy who, like, was running the cult in Rutland. And so, I mean, I'm wondering if maybe those are not action figures, but, like, strategic planning tokens. Mm-hmm. Like, you know the scene in the movie where, the heist movie, where it's like, okay, this packet of ketchup is the getaway van, and this salt shaker is the bank. 
I mean, mm-hmm. Steve would just magic those into looking like what he wanted them to look like, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. So yeah, I don't think they're actually toys, but I like that Clea thought to give them to the Hulk to play with like toys. Mm-hmm. Did you have a grandparent who, like, when you would go to their house, there wasn't anything really to play with, so they would be like, well, this is kind of like a toy. It's like, I don't have any actual toys, but uh, here's a humble figurine and a taxidermied owl or something. Yeah, my maternal grandfather and grandmother didn't have toys, but they were uh, antique dealers. Oh. And so he had a collection of antiques, and I remember being... I guess disturbed is the right way to put it when I picked up a little figurine of uh, somebody taking a bath and turned it over and it was one that where the the (laughs) bottom was removed so you could see the lady's backside and whatnot. Oh man. (laughs) And I very carefully put it back (laughs) and left. I was little, like too little to, you know, get it, but I knew that like, oh, this is not for kids. So that was awkward. Yeah, my maternal grandfather actually had a bunch of toys. It was He grew up very poor in the uh, Arabic ghetto in Boston, and he didn't have any toys when he was a kid. So when he got older, he was a very successful doctor, and he decided he was going to buy toys for himself. He didn't actually play with them, but it was important to him that he have them. And when we would visit, we could play with them, but we had to make sure we asked because they were his. They were not for <laughs> us. Of course. Wow. But my other grandparents did. I think they had some blocks or something in case we came over. But the thing that I remember mostly playing with at their house was there was a taxidermy dowel, which scared the shit out of me. But I still did find myself kind of drawn to. Oh, yeah, that sounds scary. Corey, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender, but also a worst offender. In this issue, who was your best defender and who was your worst offender? You know, I think we may have, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just guessing here, I don't know if this is going to happen, a repeat of the Oppositesville that we had in the last episode. Okay. I'm guessing, I'm curious to see if that's how it's going to play out. Let's find out. For keeping the world together just long enough for Kyle to lay an epic guilt trip on eternity, and also telling him that his pity party was distasteful. I had Steve as the best. Wow. I mean, I was very tempted to have Steve as my worst. Bad host, bores everybody to death talking about how great Kyle is. But ultimately, I actually went with the Silver Surfer because I had forgotten that he completely was just like, no, I'm too sad to save the universe. Meh, go away. Uh, I respect his boundaries. (laughs) I guess I don't. I mean, he wishes that he could not respect the boundary that keeps him from flying off into space. Mm. Conversely, I had Kyle as my best defender. Yeah, he laid a pretty serious guilt trip on Eternity, or the Shards of Eternity. Man, it's a shame that wasn't in there. That'd be a pretty good band name. But he laid a pretty good guilt trip on them and got them not to destroy the universe. Also, he recognized that Kyle is a real piece of shit, so I want to reward that kind of perspicacity. That's a good word. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a real one, but uh, I'm going to play it off like it is. I like that. So, yeah, for those two things, for recognizing what an entitled douchebag Kyle is, 
and for laying a serious guilt trip on eternity that saved the universe, I went with Kyle. That is funny because I, for the same reasons, had him as the worst. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he saves the universe. Fine. But <laughs> emotional manipulation, especially guilt trips, boo. <laughs> and whining about yourself just so Doc Strange can go on at nauseum to try and make you feel better, also boo. See, I feel like, and this is so wildly optimistic of me, but this version of Kyle, I, I don't see it as being self-pity. I see it as being more self-awareness. I think Dude, it we've might been down be this the harbinger nope. for actual growth. I know, but we got a different writer now. I got to at least give him a chance. <laughs> Fool me once, shame <laughs> on you. Fool me twice, fuck you, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair. Corey, what was your pie not made of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? Well, despite me speaking so ill of Kyle just moments ago, <laughs> um, there was a bit of dialogue between the Hulk and Kyle that I just thought was adorable. And it was like like two buddies talking about their other buddy in a kind of good-natured, but also a little bit of a mean way. And it was on page 12, and Hulk is... Something had happened that made Hulk say, Ah, you know, bet dumb magician is playing tricks again. And Kyle says, Sharp bet, Greeny. <laughs> that was another thing. I felt like Kyle was uncharacteristically supportive of the Hulk in this issue and was a good friend to him. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I liked that a lot, too. I liked all of their exchanges. I have to go with the Hulk when he's playing with his maybe not actually action figures where he says, then big wizards say to Firehead, hello, come to my house and sing songs. <laughs> this is so cute. <laughs> it's fucking adorable and potentially an interpretation of that evil wizard's attempt to summon Dormammu. <laughs> mm. I was also like wishing that because I know we have to take the text, you know, literally to come up with the band name. But I was like, ooh, Big Wizard and Firehead. So I liked that a lot. I think that is probably my favorite. I'm going to say that my backup is Son of Satan saying, of course, but if it helps, know that I too have been torn by conflicting feelings towards a parent. As Strange may have told you, my father is the... And then a guy runs in and yells, devil, devil, and attacks him. Yeah, yeah, that was a very good, like, uh, what's that called in movies? Match to action cut. Yeah, I really like that. It also just cracked me up that he's like, you may not realize this, but my father is... It's like, uh, dude, everybody realizes that because of your name. Yeah, your name and, I don't know, the fact that you carry a trident and have a pentagram on your tummy. I guess chest, not tummy. That would be a funnier tattoo. It would be. Like around his belly button. Mm -hmm. Like uh, like some people would have like a stylized sun in the 90s. Oof. <laughs> and there were some close calls with tattoos. Like stuff that I thought looked cool. And I'm <laughs> glad I didn't follow through with. I mean, you did have that first one that you got where... Wasn't it like a teenager or something who was trying to learn to tattoo and you picked up the most complicated one because you wanted a bargain? Oh, yeah. 
yeah, conceptually that wasn't a terrible choice, but practically it was a bad choice because it was, yeah, you don't pick somebody who's learning to tattoo to do complicated uh, Celtic knot work. Nope. <laughs> I had a backup too, which is uh, again, Patsy being Patsy where when Hanuman's attacking them, she says something to the effect of that's an ape, ape. And I had to think about it for a minute and it's like, oh, because he's going ape. I get it. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, I think it's come up before from me for the Hulk's rules, but it's reinforcing this Hulk's rule, which is that one should not rest on their laurels. Mm. You know, don't don't rely on past uh, successes, and that's because on page 11, Kyle is very approving of the Hulk smashing these snowmen and says, you know, you're doing great. And uh, Hulk looks at him and says, now watch Hulk do better. Ah. <laughs> Does an even bigger smash. I think that's a valuable lesson for us all to learn. I had the Hulk learning a lesson from the son of Satan in this, and that lesson is, it's a fine line between empathy and one-upsmanship. <laughs> This is something that I have to remind myself sometimes when somebody's going through something. My impulse is to be like, oh, I'm so sorry you're dealing with that. Here's something that happened to me that's similar, because so I, I know what you're going through and I know how difficult it is. And I don't think that's the right impulse. Like, I think you need to be able to listen to people and demonstrate your empathy that way without saying something that could be interpreted as trying to recenter the story around yourself. Mm -hmm. It's never my intention when that happens, but I can totally see where it comes off that way. And especially in the case of the son of Satan, it comes off as one-upsmanship, where he's like, oh, you're dealing with having a difficult mom. I know what that's like. My dad's the devil. Yeah. Yeah, way to close the conversation, right? Sheesh. Yeah, I think what he is going for is empathy there, but it doesn't always come across that way. And sometimes it is better to just listen. And you don't have to demonstrate that you were listening and that you understand by sharing an event from your own life. Mm -hmm. And that's the Hulk's rule. Very insightful, Hulk. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I got to ask you. In the year of our Lord 1981 and the month of our Lord February, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Yeah, good question. Thank you. You're welcome. So near the end of February, Wong has some vacation time coming up. And he was a huge fan, I'm sure you know this, of the Rocky movies. Mm. Or maybe it was just movie at the time. And he wanted to go to Philly to see the statue that had been installed the previous year and uh, run up the stairs and get his picture taken next to the statue and so convinced Steve to come along with them. So they had a day, they went out, put on their sweatsuits, went for a jog, <laughs> took some pictures, did the tourist stuff and just had a great day of it and decided to wrap things up by going to one of the local bars to get a few drinks and hang out. And so they were doing that pretty well into their cups. And there, just by happenstance, sitting at the bar, they ran into uh, this guy, Joey Coyle, who was an unemployed longshoreman. And, you know, just ended up having one of those nights where you make a fast friend, 
and uh, sharing your life stories, just really opening up. And, you know, he was talking about just how hard things had been and his, his struggles with addiction and just all this stuff. And afterwards, Steve was like, Wong, we need, we need to do something. For, you know, he's having a hard time getting the words out because he mm -hmm. he's not used to drinking quite that much. We need to, we need to do something for, uh, for Mr. Coyle. So he uh, put together a spell to manifest some riches to come by Mr. Coyle's way, thinking that that would lift him out of the troubles that he was in. And so it was shortly thereafter that Joey Coyle was driving, and he was driving behind an armored vehicle, which the door hadn't been shut properly, and two giant bags of cash fell out containing $1,200,000 in U.S. currency. Whoa! Which he grabbed and put in yeah. his car and drove home and spent the next several weeks handing out $100 bills to friends and strangers and people in the neighborhood and buying whatever he wanted and just having a good old time of it. Unfortunately, later on, he was apprehended by the FBI in the airport trying to get to Acapulco with hundreds of thousands of dollars strapped to his ankles in cash. He was later acquitted. Oh, good. They got, they got about a million dollars of the 1200000 back. And then that story was taken up by the press and turned into a movie, actually, that would come out later in 1993, starring John Cusack. Sadly, due to his struggles with substance abuse and other things, Coyle ended up committing suicide shortly before the movie came out. Oh. And then the movie was also a box office disaster. It cost about $11 million to make and grossed $1 million. Ooh. And poor Wong had been reading all of this, and Steve had just felt proud as punch of himself. <laughs> <laughs> making this guy's life great and Wong just didn't want to burst that bubble but said to himself he was going to be ever vigilant should Steve try and help somebody with magic again to mm. say maybe don't do that wow quite an adventure indeed well that was not the only time in February of 1981 that Steve and Wong's activities were inspired by a movie from a few years previous Steve was very very excited and he went and he got Wong and he was just like, Wong, I've just written a brilliant new original film. It's called Cigaretti and the Burglar. You're just going to love it. It's about this maverick uh, Pontiac aficionado with an excellent mustache, not unlike my own, and his manservant friend who drives a big rig, and they have to get a lot of casks of wine from Oklahoma to Alabama in a very brief period of time. And Wong is like, Steve, you didn't by any chance happen to watch Smokey and the Bandit recently, did you? And Steve's like, Wong, that's a ridiculous question. Of course I did. It was Valentine's Day. Clay and I have watched that movie every Valentine's Day since it came out. It's very romantic. And Wong's like, and you don't think your story is at all similar to Smokey and the Bandit? And Steve's like, well, perhaps I was subconsciously inspired by it in some small way, but that's fine. And Wong's like, you know, it, it really actually isn't fine. I'm going to have a friend come and talk to you about this. So Wong made a couple of calls years ago uh, when the Beatles were on one of their many quests for spiritual enlightenment. 
Wong had led them in some meditation sessions and uh, had been a bit of a guru to them. And so he called his friend George Harrison, who had been in the news recently. This is around February 21st. And he's like, hey, George, will, will you come talk to Steve? There's something that I think he should hear from you. And so George Harrison came over to the Sanctum Sanctimonious and was like, uh, yeah, look, Steve, uh, a couple of days ago, I uh, had to settle a lawsuit because I, too, was subconsciously inspired by something. You see, my song, My Sweet Lord, which uh, came out quite a while ago, was subconsciously inspired, which is to say a total ripoff of the song He's So Fine by the Chiffons that was written by Ronnie Mack. And uh, yeah, I just got called out on that legally. Turns out subconsciously inspired is not a legal defense. I ended up having to settle a lawsuit for over half a million dollars, which here in 1981 is a lot of money, even to a former Beatle. And Steve was just like, oh dear, I don't want to have to pay Burt Reynolds that kind of money. <laughs> Although I would be interested to see what he would do with it. But no, it's not worth it. Unless he made a sequel to Sharky's Machine. But no, no, I, I would rather keep this money. Thank you, George Harrison of the Beatles. And so, thanks to Wong and George Harrison of the Beatles, Steve decided to not have his screenplay for Cigaretti and the Burglar produced, which was probably the right call. Good call. I would kind of like to see that movie, though. That's a funny name. Anyway, that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing in February of 1981. Corey... Thanks for getting together and celebrating this Valentine's Day by talking about this comic book. It was a nice time. You're welcome. And I'm sure very romantic for our listeners. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, and that one we'll talk about a new Teen Titans thing. <laughs> a comic book? Yeah, probably. Okay. Who can say? I can't, I can't see the future. I'm not Santa Claus. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com or you can reach us via our P.O. Box. That's Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. If you'd like to reach us on the socials media, uh, you can do that too. Just get out your computer and type into it Tighten up the defense. Best podcast ever. And I'm pretty sure will be the first thing that pops up, which I think is legally proof that we are the best podcast ever. So, you know, that's nice. Have to get George Harrison's legal advice. He's busy. Being hmm. dead? Is he dead? Oh, geez. I don't know. I think it's just Ringo now, right? I, I and Paul McCartney. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> gotta stop killing the Beatles in my mind um, what did they do to you they know what they did mm. anyway we're on the internet so you know you can look for us there and hey if you can't find us there there's another place you can look and that is deep inside your heart we'll be there we've been there for a while <laughs>
playing with various toys that aren't really toys. You got any taxidermied owls in your heart? I sure hope not. But maybe a novelty pen wouldn't be so bad now that we're grown-ups. There wasn't a pen. What was it? Oh, it was like a risque ivory carving of a woman bathing. <laughs> Wait, how does an tub. ivory carving get nude? Huh? So it's uh, it's just like a like a bathtub with a lady in it, but then the bottom is carved out so that there's no bottom to the tub. Oh, and you can see the lady's butt and stuff. Okay, yeah, you probably shouldn't leave that lying around in your heart. No, children can find it. <laughs> And feel weird about it. Yeah, so uh, we'll just hang on to that for safekeeping. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you check that out and you decide to become a sponsor of the show, you get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There's a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. I recently talked about the issues of adventure comics that have Aqualad searching for his Aqua Dad. Those were a lot of fun to cover. And there's also the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's where we talk about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. If you donate, you get access to all of that bonus material. But more importantly, from my perspective, at least, it lets us know that you care about the show and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you so much for that. Uh, your your support has meant a great deal to me, especially over this last year. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, a great way to do that is to just, you know, spread the word. Spread it all over. Just uh, tell everybody that uh, Tighten Up the Defense is a great show and they should love it and you'd marry it if you could but it wouldn't be legally binding in your state because you can't marry a podcast sorry i wish you could too i think you guys are great but in lieu of a dowry you could give us the gift <laughs> of a review in a place that a review can be left what's a nice thing that a review can say Corey? thank goodness i don't have to leave this dowry five stars it's just that easy so thanks for doing that, and thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, come with Big Wizard and Firehead to our house to sing songs. Why don't you? Pashak Pashang! rut Yak! Hostess Fruit Pie Theater presents Daredevil versus Johnny Punk. In the next set, we'll raise the decibels to mega pitch. The high frequency sound waves will lock their brains. They'll do whatever I command. My hypersensitive hearing picked up Johnny Punk's little plan, and it's not my idea of crowd control. Hey, look who's horning in. Back off, or I'll blow the roof off. With sound! Beep, 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 beep. My radar senses enough electrical potential to do just that. Gotta think! How about Hostess Fruit Pies? 
before you turn on the juice. No, I sure digged out real fruit filling. Apple and cherry, that's a dynamite duo. That light and tender crust. Short move, Daredevil. You've got us. But we got the goodies. Better a hostess fruit pie than the fruits of crime, Johnny Punk. And thanks to Hostess, I don't have to listen to his music anymore. Oh, that hurts my feelings, it does. It doesn't say that. It's implied. You get a a big big delight (laughs) in every bite bite of Hostess hostess fruit fruit pies. pies. Isn't it, Van? Yep. Good job. I don't know what accent that was. It went back and forth between Cockney and Australian and was bad at both. It was definitely a Johnny Punk accent. 